Welcome to the Words That Minister Grace podcast. In this podcast, we read excerpts from books that the host finds edifying. Expect to hear from authors such as Matthew Henry, John Calvin, and J.C. Ryle. We take our name from Ephesians 4.29, where Paul exhorts us that our speech should build up each other, or as the King James says, minister grace. I am your host, the fake King Hesse. In this episode, we continue our reading of Calvin's Institute's Book 2, Chapter 8. We'll be reading sections 35 through 40, reading Calvin's discussion on the Fifth and Sixth Commandment. The Fifth Commandment. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. 35. The end of this commandment is, that since the Lord takes pleasure in the preservation of his own ordinance, the degree of dignity appointed by him must be held inviolable. The sum of the commandment, therefore, will be that we are to look up to those whom the Lord has set over us, yielding them honor, gratitude, and obedience. Hence it follows that everything in the way of contempt, ingratitude, or disobedience is forbidden, for the term honor has its extent of meaning in Scripture. Thus, when the apostle says, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, 1 Timothy 5.17, he refers not only to the reverence which is due to them, but to the recompense to which their services are entitled. But as this command to submit is very repugnant to the perversity of the human mind, which puffed up of ambitious longings which will scarcely allow itself to be subject, that superiority which is most attractive and least invidious is set forth as an example calculated to soften and bend our minds to habits of submission. From that subjection which is most easily endured, the Lord gradually accustoms us to every kind of legitimate subjection, the same principle regulating all. For to those whom he raises to eminence he communicates his authority, in so far as necessary to maintain their station. The titles of Father, God, and Lord all meet in him alone, and hence, whenever any one of them is mentioned, our minds should be impressed with the same feeling of reverence. Those, therefore, to whom he imparts such titles, he distinguishes by some small spark of his refulgence, so as to entitle them to honor each in his own place. In this way, we must consider that our earthly father possesses something of a divine nature in him, because there is some reason for his bearing a divine title, and that he who is our prince and ruler is admitted to some communion of honor with God. 36. Wherefore, we ought to have no doubt that the Lord here lays down this universal rule, viz., that knowing how every individual is set over us by his appointment, we should pay him reverence, gratitude, obedience, and every duty in our power. And it makes no difference whether those on whom the honor is conferred are deserving or not. Be they what they may, the Almighty, by conferring their station upon us, shows that he would have them honored. The commandment specifies the reverence due to those to whom we owe our being. This nature herself should in some measure teach us, for they are monsters and not men who petulantly and contumeliously violate the paternal authority. Hence, the Lord orders all who rebel against their parents to be put to death, they being, as it were, unworthy of the light and paying no deference to those to whom they are indebted for beholding it. And it is evident from the various appendices to the law that we were correcting, stating that the honor here referred to consists of three parts, reverence, obedience, and gratitude. The first of these the Lord enforces when he commands that those who curseth his father or his mother shall be put to death. In this way he avenges insult and contempt. 
The second he enforces when he denounces the punishment of death on disobedient and rebellious children. To the third belongs our Savior's declaration, that God requires us to do good to our parents, Matthew 15. And whenever Paul mentions this commandment, he interprets it as enjoining obedience. 37. A promise is added by way of recommendation, the better to remind us how pleasing to God is the submission which is here required. Paul applies that stimulus to rouse us from our lethargy when he calls this the first commandment with a promise, the promise contained in the first table not being specially appropriated to any one commandment, but extended to the whole law. Moreover, the sense in which the promise is to be taken is as follows. The Lord spoke to the Israelites specially of the land which he promised them for an inheritance. If then the possession of the land was an earnest of the divine favor, we cannot wonder if the Lord was pleased to testify his favor by bestowing long life, as in this way they were able to enjoy his kindness. The meaning, therefore, is, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thou may be able, during the course of a long life, to enjoy the possession of the land which is to be given thee in testimony of my favor. But as the whole world is blessed to believers, we justly class the present life among the number of divine blessings. Whence this promise has, in like manner, reference to us also, inasmuch as the duration of the present life is a proof of the divine benevolence towards us, it is not promised to us, nor was it promised to the Jews, as if in itself it constituted happiness, but because it is an ordinary symbol of the divine favor to the pious. Wherefore, if any one who is obedient to parents happens to be cut off before mature age, a thing which not infrequently happens, the Lord nevertheless adheres to his promise as steadily as when he bestows a hundred acres of land when he promised only one. The whole lies in this. We must consider that long life is promised only in so far as it is a blessing from God, and that it is a blessing only in so far as it is a manifestation of divine favor. This, however, he testifies and truly manifests to his servants more richly and substantially by death. 38. Moreover, while the Lord promises the blessing of present life to children who show proper respect to their parents, he at the same time intimates that an inevitable curse is appending over the rebellious and disobedient, and that it may not fail of execution. He, in his law, pronounces a sentence of death upon them and orders it to be inflicted. If they escape the judgment, he, in some way or other, will execute vengeance. For we see how great a number of this description of individuals fall either in battle or in brawls. Others of them are overtaken by unwanted disasters, and almost all are a proof that the threatening is not used in vain. But if any do escape till extreme old age, yet, because deprived of the blessing of God in this life, they only languish on in wickedness, and are reserved for severer punishment in the world to come, they are far from participating in the blessing promised to obedient children. It ought to be observed, by the way, that we are ordered to obey parents only in the Lord. This is clear from the principle already laid down, for the place which they occupy is one which the Lord has exalted them, by communicating to them a portion of his own honor. Therefore, the submission yielded to them should be a step in our ascent to the supreme parent, and hence, if they instigate us to transgress the law, they deserve not to be regarded as parents, but as strangers attempting to seduce us from obedience to our true father. The same holds in the case of rulers, masters, and superiors of every description, 
for it were unbecoming and absurd that the honor of God should be impaired by their exaltation, an exaltation which, being derived from him, ought to lead us up to him. The Sixth Commandment, Thou shalt not kill. 39. The purport of this commandment is that since the Lord has bound the whole human race by a kind of unity, the safety of all ought to be considered as entrusted to each. In general, therefore, all violence and injustice and every kind of harm from which our neighbor's body suffers is prohibited. Accordingly, we are required faithfully to do what is in us to defend the life of our neighbor, to promote whatever tends to his tranquility, to be vigilant in rewarding off harm, and when danger comes, to assist in removing it. Remembering that the divine lawgiver thus speaks, consider, moreover, that he requires you to apply the same rule in regulating your mind. It were ridiculous that he who sees the thoughts of the heart and has special regard to them should train the body only to rectitude. This commandment therefore prohibits the murder of the heart and requires a sincere desire to preserve our brother's life. The hand indeed commits the murder, but the mind under the influence of wrath and hatred conceives it. How can you be angry with your brother without impassionately longing to do him harm? If you must not be angry with him, neither must you hate him, hatred being nothing but inveterate anger. However, you may disguise the fact or endeavor to escape from it by vain pretexts. Where either wrath or hatred is, there is an inclination to do mischief. If you still persist in equivocation, the mouth of the Spirit has declared that whoever hateth his brother is a murderer, 1 John 3.15. And the mouth of our Savior has declared that Whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be danger of the judgment. And whoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Matthew 5.22 40. Scripture notes a twofold equity on which this commandment is founded. Man is both the image of God and our flesh. Wherefore, if we would not violate the image of God, we must hold the person of man sacred. If we would not divest ourselves of humanity, we must cherish our own flesh. The practical inference is to be drawn from the redemption and gift of Christ will be elsewhere considered. The Lord has been pleased to direct our attention to those two natural considerations as inducements to watch over our neighbor's preservation, viz. to revere the divine image impressed upon him and embrace our own flesh. To be clear of the crime of murder is not enough to refrain from shedding man's blood. If in act you perpetuate, if in endeavor you plot, if in wish and design you conceive what is adverse to another's safety, you have the guilt of murder. On the other hand, if you do not, according to your means and opportunity, study to defend his safety, by that inhumanity you violate the law. But if the safety of the body is so carefully provided for, we may hence infer how much care and exhortation is due to the safety of the soul, which is of immeasurably higher value in the sight of God. Thanks for listening. In the show notes, you can find contact information and a link to the text from today. Remember to heed Paul when he says in Ephesians 4.29 to Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers.